This is An Economy of One, your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy, its life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Good evening and welcome again to An Economy of One. I'm going to get right to my guest. Joining me now is Chris Edwards. He's a director of tax policy studies at the Cato Institute. He's editor of downsizinggovernment.org. He's a top expert on federal and state tax. He's also the author of Downsizing the Federal Government and co-author of Global Tax Revolution. Chris, welcome to An Economy of One. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, uh, you know, you're the guy, you're the expert on on, uh, government spending and the budget. Uh, I'll get, I'll start with a really open-ended question. Uh, what, what do you think of uh, President Trump's uh, first budget that he, uh, he uh, submitted to Congress? Uh, I think it's great. I think it's the most fiscally conservative budget since uh, Ronald Reagan's days. Uh, that doesn't mean that Congress is uh, going to pa- pass uh, much or all of it, um, unfortunately, but he's got a lot of spending cuts in there. We need spending cuts. We're still running half-trillion-dollar deficits, which I think is totally unethical. Um, it pushes costs onto young people in the future. So Trump, to his credit, he proposes lots of cuts to a lot of different programs. And, of, of course, the special interests have come out of the woodwork to try to block the cuts. But I give him credit for trying. Now, let's let's define cuts because that has two meanings. You know, if you and I cut our budget, we we actually cut spending. Now, is is his cuts a cut or is it a reduction in the increase? So some of them are just reductions in increase. So he he would reduce the growth rate of Medicaid, the giant health care program for low-income people, and he would reduce the growth in food stamps, the, the huge welfare program. But other things are actual cuts. I mean, uh, um, you know, he would cut farm subsidies, for example. Some some he would he would put a, an income uh, limit cap on farm subsidies, so millionaires and billionaires wouldn't get the subsidies. Mm-hmm. So that would be a true cut. So it's a mix. Now that being said, I mean, it's uh, like you said, every 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 senator, every representative is saying, "Geez, I'm all behind President Trump," except. For the cuts to my district and and my constituency, uh, at the end of the day, uh, how uh, you have any guess how how much of this is going to survive through the process? So some of the things, um, absolutely, uh, there will be some reforms. I think so. He's proposed some privatizations, like privatizing our traffic control system. That's got a lot of momentum. Momentum. I think that could happen. Social Security Disability, this is a program that even mainstream liberal media like PBS and CBS are running stories about. There, there seem to be millions of people getting disability insurance who, frankly, uh, they should be in the workforce and often they want to work, but the program encourages them, them to stay on the sidelines. So some of these things will go ahead. Uh, others, uh, you're right, the special interest uh, pressures uh, will, will block it. To give you one specific example, which I was really disappointed about. So Trump proposes to eliminate this program called the Appalachian Regional Commission. It's $100 million. It dishes out money for local projects in places like Kentucky in particular. So the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell from Kentucky comes out and says, no way that's going to be cut. That's 
really disappointing. The only way we're going to cut some of these programs is if we get leadership from the top. If the leaders in the House and the Senate say, yes, we are willing to take cuts to our programs for the overall good here, but if they don't have the leader, if we don't have that sort of top-down leadership, it's not going to happen. Now, you mentioned uh, one thing uh, that I, I had on the list to talk to you about, and that's uh, privatizing the air traffic control. And when I heard air traffic control, my memory, uh, I'm old enough, immediately went back to PATCO under Reagan. I think Reagan's I don't right. know, first few months in, in office, he, he uh, uh, fixed that from them going on strike. Uh, I talked That's to right. a commercial. Uh, yeah, I talked to a commercial airline pilot uh, yesterday, and I asked him, "What do you think about privatizing air traffic control?" And he goes, "Great idea. It's a great okay. idea." So, yeah, I, I think the pilots are behind it as well. Uh, talk a little bit about that. What's what's his thoughts on privatizing that? So this is actually an idea that goes back to the Clinton administration, believe it or not. And in other countries like Canada and Britain, it was actually left of center governments that privatized it. Basically, you know, air traffic control, when you think about it, it's a high-tech business. Mm -hmm. It's like trying to run a Silicon Valley business in an old-fashioned bureaucracy in Washington. It doesn't work. So we're falling behind with our technology. And the result is, you know, the air, the, the skies are getting more crowded and more congested, and our system just can't keep up. So the solution, Trump, I give him a lot of credit, he's, he's grabbed onto this, put it into pri in the private sector, uh, have a sort of a board of directors where you've got the airlines and the unions and other aviation groups, uh, and let them, you know, go to town and, and, and impose their own charges and raise their own money and innovate and change. And, uh, you know, the current system is micromanaged by Congress, which makes absolutely no sense. You know, I, I was reading... Uh, one of your uh, tax and budget bulletins put out by the Cato Institute, and it was you, you were talking about infrastructure, and and uh, I felt a little bit embarrassed. I was glad I was by myself. Uh, I, I tend to think of infrastructure as a federal government thing, but it's really not. It's it's really most of it is state and private, is it not? That's right. Actually, 96% of all uh, infrastructure in the United States is owned by state and local governments and also the private sectors. You know, think about just your home. I mean, the uh, your your uh, your internet and telecom service, that's all private. Um, uh, a lot of stuff that, you know, the pipelines that deliver oil and natural gas to homes and the like, that's all private. Telephone network, all private. Um, you know, and, you know, even think about, uh, you know, the, the roads, they're all private. Even the interstate highway system, some people seem to think that those are federally owned. They're not. All, all interstates in the country are owned by state governments. Yes, the federal government subsidizes them, but I, I don't think that's a good idea, frankly. I think, you know, if you live in Virginia or Texas or California, your own state government should fund your roads in your interstate, in your mm -hmm. state. I think that would be more efficient than rather than the federal government getting their fingers in, involved. So where, I mean, you know, they've talked about trillions of dollars in Trump's infrastructure plan from the federal government. Uh, is that just a drop in the bucket when it comes to the infrastructure or uh, is the federal government going to put a lot more money into these, these state and private infrastructure projects? 
It looks like the uh, I don't I don't think the Trump administration's figured out exactly what they're going to do yet, but I think what they're planning to do uh, is to get more private money in things that were traditionally or are traditionally government. So, for example, there are a number of examples around the country uh, where private money has gone into expanding interstate highways. So, in Northern Virginia, where I live, a private company came in uh, and they raised two billion dollars to widen the Capitol Beltway in Northern Virginia. Uh, the project was a big success. It came in on time, on budget, and they collect electronic tolls to pay for it. So to me, that makes sense, and that's efficient. Uh, it's either that or the, the government, government's going to be hiking taxes to expand the interstates. I, I'd say, you know, let, let's get some private investment in there to help us out. Well, finally, uh, uh, Chris, you know, it, it's, it, it almost feels like under President uh, Bush, uh, number two, President Obama, uh, those two terms, we, we, we have just gone so far, so fast in national debt. Um, we can't get out under a, a single term or even a two-term President Trump. But, you know, you deal with this every day. Is it a hopeless cause or do you see us working our way out of this eventually? I mean, wherever we stop accumulating debt, it, the sooner we stop accum accumulating it, the better. You know, the higher debt is, uh, the more disastrous it, it really will be for young people in the future. Think about it this way. Uh, the more we get in debt, you know, half of all our debt and the government debt now is borrowed from abroad, from the Chinese, from the British and the Japanese and others. Uh, so people, young people in the future are going to be earning money. They're going to be paying taxes to the government, and the money is going to be sent abroad. Well, we all lose if that happens. And the more debt we have, the more we will essentially be tax slaves to foreign creditors in the future. That is not a good, uh, not a good direction to go. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I I use the example that we're on the path to Venezuela, and uh, uh, in more ways than one. But uh, uh, that that debt is is just absolutely incredible. So uh, yeah, we, we've been speaking with Chris Edwards. He's a director of tax policy studies at the Cato Institute, editor of DownsizingGovernment.com. Org, where he's a top expert on federal and state tax and author of Downsizing the Federal Government. Chris, this has been a real treat for me. Uh, I really, really enjoy the stuff that Cato puts out and, and your work there as well. And uh, look forward to uh, chatting with you again soon if we can. I appreciate your support and uh, keep spreading the message. I appreciate it. You have a good evening. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, while everything was going on uh, about the Senate committee <clears throat> interviewing James Comey, um, the House of Representatives actually did something today that I approve of. Now, you've heard me talk about Dodd-Frank legislation many, many times. I've talked to... Uh, my good friend Veronique de Regie over to the Mercatus Center and uh, several other people about how <clears throat> terrible this legislation is. Uh, it's got about the same number of pages as the Affordable Care Act, about 2,300 pages or so, 
it's huge. And it's really, really constricting. It's all about power. And and part of Dodd-Frank legislation is the CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, headed by a gentleman by the name of Richard Cordray. And Richard Cordray, let me take that back, the head of the CFPB, who happens to be Richard Cordray, but the head is not accountable to anybody. Budget comes out of the Federal Reserve. So Congress, who controls the budget of everything else, can't kill it by starving it from money. Okay, so it has no accountability to Congress. It's a rulemaking board. So they make rules that don't go through Congress. Congress can't vote on them, can't veto them, can't shoot them down. The president can't veto them or shoot them down. And the president, nor Congress, nor anybody else for that matter, can fire the head of the CFPB without essentially criminal cause. So this guy is, that position is very, very powerful. And when asked a while back in Congress why they spent, or to justify spending a couple hundred million dollars refurbishing offices with rare artwork and oriental rugs and that kind of stuff, uh, the guy just kind of laughed at the, the question and said, I don't have to justify it. And he never answered the question. And it's true. He doesn't have to justify it because the money comes out of the Federal Reserve. It has nothing to do with Congress. So it's none of Congress's business. Now, technically it is. I'm being somewhat facetious. But it's none of Congress's business um, what they do with their money because Congress doesn't authorize the money and therefore can't do anything about the money. So anyway, the House of Representatives today repealed major portions and overhauled major portions of Dodd-Frank legislation. And they actually voted on it, and it's out. It's on its way to the Senate. And that's where the optimism kind of breaks down. Because it won't come out of the Senate looking anything like this. But it's still a good thing. We get some of that repealed, some of it overhauled out of the Senate. We'll be better off. Now, the trouble with Dodd-Frank is that it hamstrings, it chokes, it handcuffs, whatever analogy we want to use. Um, Community banks, smaller financial institutions. And it also does a lot of hamstringing on major banks. Got the Volcker rule in there. Um, For the smaller community banks, it is just very onerous on regulatory matters and capital controls, tier one capital, um, loan loss reserves, that kind of stuff. And it just makes it so they can't really loan out money 
to uh, the community. So the House took the initiative. The vote was pretty much along party lines, as you would expect. And uh, now it goes to the Senate. Now, the Senate's got a lot of stuff backing up in the queue. They got uh, Affordable Care Act changes that they haven't worked on yet. They got uh, some tax legislation they haven't worked on yet. And now they got Dodd-Frank overhaul that they haven't acted on yet. So will it get done this year? I don't know. Will it get done at all? Don't know. I can't imagine Congress in general and the Senate in particular um, making this happen. Democrats will filibuster. Uh, McConnell probably won't use the uh, nuclear option again and just do a simple majority, although he should. Because there's there's too much fodder in this uh, Dodd-Frank legislation, and consequently there's equal amount of fodder in the uh, overhaul that can be manipulated and used against people in the next election. Because people don't understand Dodd-Frank legislation. They don't understand what caused the 2008 real estate meltdown. They don't understand what the legislation does. And so they will believe the commercials, they'll believe the, the billboards and believe the rhetoric. But it is a good step and I'm anxious to follow it and see what happens. Coming up next, Wayne Cruz, Vice President for Policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. We'll talk to Wayne next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Wayne Cruz. He's the Vice President for Policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He's the author of the yearly report, 10,000 Commandments, an annual snapshot of the federal regulatory state. And he's co-authored This Liberal Congress Went to Market, a bipartisan policy agenda for the 110th Congress. Wayne, welcome back to An Economy of One. Well, thank you so much for having me back. I really appreciate it. Somebody was telling me yesterday it's a lot more than 10,000 commandments now, and I need to change the name, but it doesn't quite have the ring. (laughs) Well, I I assume uh, you took that from a book I have in my library by uh, Harold Fleming, uh, 10,000 Commandments, talking about the antitrust rules. I said that book was on antitrust back in the, I started this 10,000 commandments report, gosh, back in 92, wow. something like that. I was at uh, Citizens for Sound Economy. Now that's what off to FreedomWorks and AFP. And um, I started the program because everybody was looking at the federal budget, looking at taxes, looking at spending, how big the deficit was. And gosh, I tell you, 
I wish the the budget was what it was back in '92, but <laughs> but nonetheless, we were ignoring the regulatory side, the hidden tax. And what I do in Ten Thousand Commandments, just in a nutshell, is I tally up all the rules and regulations that the federal government, all the all the alphabet soups of agencies, are putting out. Whether you're talking about economic regulation, telecom, environmental, financial, and so forth, uh-huh. but just try to get a handle on how many how many regulations there are pages in the Federal Register, and on costs where we can. I mean, I I think that the cost of regulations are half of what the federal government spends. You know, the budget is back hitting that $4 trillion number again, like it did back during the downturn. And I tell you, the federal regulations, my best reckoning, and and I I see this from other sources too, is about $2 trillion a year, close to $2 trillion a year. And that's half the level of federal spending. It's more than the personal, the individual income tax and the corporate income tax which is about $282 billion, I believe, it's more than both of those combined. Now, so it's a big burden, and we're just trying to get Congress to do something about it. Now, let's talk about that for a minute because, uh-huh. one, uh, you know, you, the, the human brain reaches a certain number of zeros, and it kind of becomes – of you kind of lose the impact of it. But One, also, two, three lots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's funny. I hadn't heard that before. I'm going to use that. But, uh, how, you know, $1.9 trillion, how do you quantify that? That's not the yeah. government necessarily spending $1.9. It's that's cost right. to you and me, isn't it? Exactly, and that's exactly what we need to get at because it, we know the federal government is spending $4 trillion a year, and this year I think the deficit is back up at the $500 billion level. It's quickly going to get up to a trillion mm-hmm. by, I think, 2021 in the latest figures I was looking at. But in any event – that's what the federal government spends, but that's but spending is not all the federal government does. It may, it it requires net neutrality regulations on the internet. It imposes privacy regulations. It regulates holes in Swiss cheese. It passes dictates about financial regulation, which Congress just happened to pass the Financial Choice Act today to roll back some of the Dodd Frank right. regulations, and they had done the Obamacare. But all of those ways that government intervenes and directs the private sector. One way that uh, our, our uh, founder would always put it is, you know, it's too much of the government steering while the market merely rose. And I think that's a good way to, to frame a lot of what government regulation is. It's the private sector having to respond to numerous, numerous decrees from the federal government. And those are what we try to quantify. And over the years, the federal government, the GAO or the OMB um, uh, offices had done estimates of cost of paperwork and deadweight cost of taxes, uh, transportation, environmental regulations, so forth, things like that. And their reckoning for a long, long time had, had already been over a trillion dollars. And in recent years, we've done you know the Homeland Security Bill, we've done Dodd-Frank, we had Sarbanes-Oxley, we did Obamacare, all of these ways that government's intervening. And we're trying to get Congress to do more to quantify it. You know, they this year, Trump came in and issued these executive orders to put a freeze on regulations, essentially, and he's capped their new cost at zero. And I can tell you, regulation this year has stopped. I mean, it, there are a lot of things going on with the Trump administration that, that, mm-hmm. that people are arguing about. But one thing I can tell you for sure is unless you're talking about the FAA aircraft worthiness directives, airworthiness directives for uh, aircraft and you know, Coast Guard rules, regulation has just stopped. And but in order for that to sustain, you know, kind of like Obama's agenda depended on a Clinton victory. Right. In order for Trump's deregulatory agenda to stick, Congress is going to have to pass something 
Now, the House has already done it since several reg reform bills, but this stuff right now is dead in the Senate unless something could be made to move. But no one wants – Democrats don't want to give Trump a victory on regulatory reform by any means, and they don't see any urgency right now for doing it because the press has got back and all that. So uh, it's a very tough, tough situation right now to get the reforms done. It's not like in the 90s. We had, you know, we had Clinton in office, but you had Newt Gingrich – in the uh, in the in the House, and they did unfunded mandates reform, small business reform, uh, even the Congressional Review Act that's so uh, that's so controversial right now is actually Harry Reid and Senator Carl Levin who were the ones uh, in, in favor of the Congressional Review Act back then. So we don't have that bipartisan environment right now to do something about these three thousand plus regulations that are coming out every year, but. Um, you know, th- things could change. I mean, you know, you know how how DC is. But, oh, yeah. r- but right now, it's not possible. But things could change uh, in short order. You know, with some kind of uh, something that spurs it. We we'll just have to see. Now, now, educate us a little bit on the mm-hmm. difference between a regulation and a law, because Congress yeah. only passed a couple hundred laws last year, and that doesn't right. sound too bad, <laughs> you know. But there's thousands of regulations. Where do those come from? That's right. I was. Um, we. You know. That, that's one thing we look at. We always talk about how. Con- we always talk about how Congress is out of control and Congress is doing too many things. And certainly it is. You know, it, it created all these regulatory agencies, and even Republicans created EPA and Consumer Product Safety Commission and turned a former agency into the Energy Department and all of that. But it's true. Congress really does a few dozen laws every year. Somewhere between 100 and 220, generally. Mm-hmm. But the federal agencies and, and those congressional laws, they include things like naming post offices and stuff. You know, <laughs> so it's like that. But the same thing with, but with regulation, it's very different. You've got 50 plus departments, agencies, and commissions by one count, and then other counts I've, I've used, I've found are over 200 agencies. Nobody can even say for sure how many agencies exist. But in any event, they put out last year, under Obama, 3,850. That was a huge jump from the year before. Obama put out 3,400 regulations. This past year, it was 3,800. So you had that giant jump, that surge in rules. So when you would hear Republicans early this calendar year with Trump in the in office talking about doing these resolutions of disapproval on so-called midnight regulations mm-hmm. of Obama, that's what they were talking about, the big surge in regulations, you know, like uh, food labeling regulations and right. and no no vaping on airplanes or F, FDA deciding that vaping is a tobacco product on its own without Congress passing a law. The agencies just pump out regulations like chocolate bunnies. But it has stopped uh, this year. And, you know, that is one power that the executive does have. The agencies. I mean, apart from the independent agencies are, uh, you know, working for the president. And if Obama had a pen and phone, you know, you can also envision a, a, a meat axe. <laughs> you know, one, you, you, if, if a pen and phone like Obama had can grow government, you can also imagine that, yes, within the rule of law, that pen, same pen and phone can also curtail the growth of government. Right. <clears throat> so far, that's what the Trump administration is doing. And the question now is, given all the fights that are going on, you know, we had the the blow-up over Obamacare repeal. Then we had the nuclear option on Gorsuch. Now we've got no agreement, even among Republicans, on what to do on the tax package and the budget. And then plus we've got the debt ceiling coming up, Mm -hmm. and we're already in June, 
And it's going to come August recess time very, very, very fast. So there's a lot of things that have to get resolved. And unfortunately, regulatory reform may not be the highest thing on the list. But we are working hard to try to say, well, if you're interested in things like dynamic scoring and the impacts of regulations on the economy, and hey, if you were to kind of loosen the chains a little bit, not that I want the federal government to get more money, but it could improve your tax picture picture or your deficit picture. There's a little bit of unity in the reg reform debate and the tax and budget debate. And I, I, I see hints of that in the in the congressional debate and some of the hearings that are going on and things like that. The, the regulatory reform debate and budget debate are increasingly um, kind of unified. They you have to talk about both. Mm-hmm. And um, but it, the, it's just that the environment right now is that um, the Democratic Party isn't interested in working with Trump on any of these things. So they have a very tough time in the Senate getting regulatory reform bills through. But the House has done its job. It's passed at least three major ones. You know, I, I've, I've made that comment on air before that mm-hmm. President Trump could could create the cure for cancer and, and want to give it to everybody in the world for free, and the Democrats would vote against it. You know, That's right. It doesn't matter what he, what, what he says or how good it is. It's, it comes out of Trump, so we can't approve it. Came, it. it came from Trump, and, you know, there's, yeah. I, there, you know a lot of— I mean, you remember the primaries, and you remember yep. how there were a lot of never Trump or Republicans too. And yep. I have no doubt there's a lot of them who wish they had Pence right now instead. And I, <laughs> I you know, I, it's just we we just have a a a real sour environment. But the problem with that is, this is I I have never seen even when when we shifted from Clinton to George Bush, and even when I went back and looked at what happened with regulations when Reagan came in, they were at a at a peak back then under Carter. And then, and they dropped into him. There's been nothing like the rollback we've had under Trump, and I'm I'm trying to get that message out a little more. In fact, we're doing a little short article about that tomorrow um, in the morning. And I, I think you know if so, if something can emerge, there are some Democrats, you know, people like Joe Manchin or Heidi Heitkamp, um, Claire McCaskill in the Senate. There are some who don't necessarily want to go to the mat defending Obama's regulatory state. Right. And but it's just that the environment is so poisoned, their colleagues aren't going along. So it's still tough to get the 60 votes in the Senate on any of this. Now, that being said, I mean, we Mm -hmm. you saying to me and our listeners that um, rules, regulations have essentially stopped at this Uh point. Would you say because you're the only one saying that? I mean, we don't see that Mm -hmm. hardly anywhere. Uh, Mm -hmm. Would Mm -hmm. you say that, that President Trump is. Uh, doing a pretty decent job uh, on that front then. Yeah, I would say, you know, you you see the news every day like I do, and you Mm -hmm. talk about the news on your show. You know what the the environment is like. And, I mean, even today, the Comey testimony, you know, one of the big revelations was Loretta Lynch was pressuring him to say, uh, no, we're, uh, you know, toned down on investigating on Hillary email, but that's not on any of the headlines. It's like back, back to your thing of the cure for cancer. It's just not going to be talked about. But on the regulatory front, remember, the first thing he did was a freeze. Then he came out and said, we're going to speed up permitting on manufacturing and did an, an executive order on that. Then he said, we're going to speed up permitting on infrastructure projects and did and did an executive order on that. And earlier this week, he was doing an infrastructure push. 
Then he did the executive order saying for every new regulation, two old ones have got to go. And not only that, uh, your net new cost of regulations agencies has got to be zero for the coming fiscal year. And then the way I read the order is that's going to extend into the next fiscal year as well. So on the regulatory front, from with from the perspective of what a, a president can do using his legitimate executive power, I don't think you could have done uh, any better. I mean, as I say, he has reduced regulations and the, the flow of regulations more than I've ever seen before. It yeah. doesn't mean – free markets have never meant you don't have regulations. It's always your choice is political discipline or competitive discipline. Right. Companies don't operate in a vacuum. They've got suppliers and business customers and Wall Street and consumers and the media. All these forces arrayed against companies that misbehave. So I don't ever let somebody say, oh, you don't think regulation is right. No, it's just a question is, is, is a, you know, an agency regulation doing the right job or is it even regulation or just some kind of rent-seeking you know, some kind of a scheme, you right. know, protecting the agency, not protecting the public. <clears throat> but it's uh, it's amazing what's been achieved, in, at least in that regard. And still to come are the executive branch re- reorganization campaign that Trump is doing, and right. he's uh, having meetings during the during the spring and now the summer uh, on that. And I I expect that around September there are going to be some announcements too on what he's going to do. as far as reorganizing some of the executive branch agencies. Plus he's putting like a regulatory czar, you know, kind of think of like a, like a, like a guy to say no, you know, somebody to say no in every agency, (laughs) you know, which is is something that's, uh, that's sorely needed. Yeah. Kind of a a CFO of the country here, you know, there you go. I mean, I've been, I've just, I've been very pleased in that regard. And, um, you know, but that's, you know, that's my little piece of, of, of what I look at. I don't sure. I don't look at everything that Trump does or everything that Congress does. Just but on the regulatory front, um, it's uh, it's been, uh, you know, pedal to the metal. It's been sure. it's been fast and it's been a lot. And it even even includes um, not just the regulations agencies do, but all of their crazy memoranda and guidance and right. notices. We took to calling all this regulatory dark matter, all the stuff they do to influence. Uh, what companies do and, and the public does, but without going through the notice and comment period of even a normal regulation, right. which is already <laughs> not sufficient, but they just they skip that too and just do guidance instead. Yeah, a couple We've, of those got revoked yesterday. The Labor Department been putting out guidances on independent contractors and uh, joint employers, and the business community is going wild over this stuff. And yeah. you know, under the under the Obama administration, yesterday Trump's uh, new Labor Secretary revoked those two. Yeah. Did didn't get anywhere near the coverage I thought I thought it would be it would get, but it was really really significant. Yeah, well, you know, we we had to focus on Comey today, but uh, that's right. <laughs> we got to do that. <laughs> we we've been speaking with Wayne Cruz. He's vice president for policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute and author of the yearly report Ten Thousand Commandments: An Annual Snaps Snapshot of the federal regulatory state. Wayne, I really appreciate all your time tonight. As always, it's very informative, and you guys do great work over there at CEI. We're going to put all the stuff up on our website, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Terrific. It's very much a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank Y'all you. have a good evening. You too. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. In the spirit of seeing less regulation, like Wayne was talking about, and, and uh, more of a positive, we're, we're starting to see minor, thing, minor things, but very important things. One was laws passed in Utah this week made it legal to have a lemonade stand for a minor to have a lemonade stand. Now, we can say, well, good, good for Utah, the beehive state, okay, known for their hard work, ethic, that kind of stuff. My reaction is, why do we need a law to allow a kid to have a lemonade stand? Okay, why do we need that law? Any of you ever bought lemonade from a kid in a lemonade stand? You ever bought lemonade from a kid? I have. It's terrible. You, you don't buy it to drink it. You buy it so the kid feels like they're earning something. That comes on the heels of a story out of Alabama where uh, Gardendale, Alabama, where the city council made it illegal for kids to mow lawns for money. And it was done by a major, it was pushed by a major law mowing firm in town. And the city council agreed with them. So a kid had to get a $110 license to mow lawns for the summer. Now, I mowed lawns as a kid. Every kid I knew mowed lawns for money. Well, just today, that law in Gardendale, Alabama has been changed and kids no longer have to get a uh, $110 license to be able to mow lawns for money. Now, I can understand, I don't agree with, but I can understand the law, the lawn mowing firm in town losing business because the kids are going to do it for 20 bucks or or something like that. But I think it's vital that these kids learn free market principles at that age, that they provide a product or a service and they get paid for it and make money. I have not seen where the city council wants to tax them on it yet, but uh, that's probably coming. So, Few th- a few things are happening that are positive. Let's grab them where we can. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 